Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora everyone and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Tony Treslove today about Kia New Zealand. But before we do that, we talk a lot with her about her life and experiences, both here in New Zealand, but also living herself overseas. We then talk a lot about the work of Kia, which is an amazing organization connecting Kiwis who live outside of New Zealand. I learned a whole lot about what they do and their focus, and it was really interesting to consider the wealth of experience which is actually outside of New Zealand and the willingness of those people to help others back here who want to expand or take their products overseas. I know you can enjoy this interview, and if you do, you might want to check out some of the others in the back catalog, because this is episode number 259, and even as I say that, I can't really believe that it's gotten to that many. What I'm doing with Seeds is trying to build up a database of stories of inspiring Kiwis who are doing amazing things with their lives. And that means I talk in depth with a real variety of people, ranging from six-year-olds about what it's like to be six, to entrepreneurs, inventors, founders of charity. You get the picture. There's a real variety. Also, it probably takes about five seconds to hit subscribe on the podcast. And there's heaps more content, including free guides, videos, and articles at theseeds.nz. Now let's get into this interview with Tony. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Tony Treslove, who's the CEO of Kia New Zealand. Great to have you on the show. And as um, you know, what we do on Seeds is just talk with people about their lives, their journeys, what has led them to do what they do today. So rather than jumping straight in and talking and asking questions about Kia, what I'd like to do, do is go back in a time machine and just tell us a little bit about what life was like for you when you were, say, four or five years old. Interesting question. So when I was four or five years old, I was living on Patawa Deer Farm, which uh, is a is a lovely piece of land um, just north of Opotiki in the East Cape. And mm. I was just thinking about going to school. I was living on a farm with my parents and my older brother and older sister and was a real country kid. Loved my gumboots, loved being out on the tractor with dad. We had horses, obviously um, deer. And my father was a helicopter pilot. He did a lot of deer recovery. And so he also had a flight school on the farm. How had he gotten into deer as a, a thing? Like, because that was quite a big industry, wasn't it? A couple of decades ago. Yeah, it was huge in the in the 70s and 80s. He um, spent some time in the Army um, as a helicopter pilot and also in the Air Force. Uh, he did a couple of tours of Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. And I imagine he came back and was looking at ways that he could use his skills to... Um, to build a life, to build uh, an income for the family. And that's my parents had spent some time in the South Island where he'd done a lot of deer recovery work. And I imagine picked Opotiki as a, a nice place in the world and decided to set up a farm there. And he populated the entire deer farm with, um, with deer recovery, netting wild deer out of the bush and transporting wow. them to farm. That's amazing. Can you did you ever go with him in the helicopter to do those sorts of deer recoveries or 
Never for deer recovery because they used to do it in quite small choppers. So they'd they'd do it in sort of like a Robinson, um, quite a small two-seater. And so usually there was only room for dad as a pilot and then he would have um, what they called a shooter, uh, but that would be someone who had a net gun. Uh, So they would spray the net out to capture the deer and then they would hook the net up under the helicopter and and fly them home. So there wasn't often room for for kids to tag along, but we did used to do a lot of flying, um, you know, up to visit family and uh, in Auckland uh, and around the country when I was younger. That deer recovery, like, yeah, just, just I'm just curious about that. Describe, like, where would he go? He would just set off towards the mountains and then spot some wild deer and then just shoot the gun and, and get the net around them? Is that it? As I understand it, yeah. And um, they had, uh, my father and uh, one of his shooters had crafted a design for a net gun. So it wasn't a commercially available product at the time. But over a few years of doing the work, they'd sort of honed this device that allowed them to to spray the net out and, and capture the deer and, you know, a nice humane way and, and transport them back into the farm. Yeah, that's amazing. And did did that continue through your childhood? Was that something the farm was doing? Yeah, so we I was on the farm until about the age of nine or 10. And then we moved back up to Auckland. Um, I'm not entirely sure why dad exited the farm at that point in time, perhaps it had sort of just reached um, its limit or perhaps he fancied doing something else. And we moved up into Auckland and he picked up a commercial airline role with Air New Zealand. Okay. Yeah. So going back to your early sort of childhood memories, it sounds like it was quite an outdoors sort of environment then. Would that be right? Very outdoors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, up until I went to school, I've got really vivid memories of being out on the farm with mum and dad. They both got involved in and feeding the deer and moving them around the farm and um, any other number of, of work that needed to be done. There was a lot of bush clearing and gauze clearing. I remember quite vividly dad sort of being out, you know, clearing gauze for days on end and possum trapping. And um, I think that was a moment in time when there was reward as well for, for trapping possums on farm. And so I do have also memories of, of dad going out in a weekend and, being able to shoot sort of a thousand possums over a couple of days and then wow. skinning them and, and, you know, pinning the skins up to dry and then heading into town with this big pile of, of possum skins to sort of cash them in. So it was a real rural sort of salt of the earth upbringing. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you think when reflecting back on it, do you think that has changed your attitudes or your approaches to life having that rural upbringing as a young child? I think it's um, I think it's definitely changed my views around primary industry for New Zealand in terms of understanding what what life is really like outside of main centres, outside of business for everyday Kiwis. And I think that was really interesting context for me later in life when I went into work at Fonterra for three years, mm-hmm. um, sort of having had that upbringing, understanding the values that our farmers hold dear, and you know, and, and just how hard they work Mm. Um, yeah so no it's definitely helped shape my outlook Mm. yeah when we first moved to New Zealand in the early 1980s we moved down to Amaru so it was like a very rural setting 
our neighbors were sheep on one side and a graveyard on the other. <laughs> and it was very remote. But the, the farmers there, like, it was a 24-7 job, pretty much. Like, there was a lot involved in, at that time, a lot of grain um, growing and things, but learned a lot from them. Yeah, absolutely. It is really hard work, but it it is also quite a unique job in that I think, you know, many farmers really value having their families involved in their in their day jobs. So, um, you know, I know as a kid, I was always out of the back back of the farm with dad and so you know he was able to take his family to work every day which is quite unique and special as well yeah definitely so what was it like transitioning from that rural setting and you know looking at the possum skins and and the deer and and all of this and then moving into a, a I guess a more traditional city sort of space do you have memories of that yeah that's an interesting question I don't remember it being too jarring surprisingly we, we moved into into Bayswater um into um you know quite a a small um sort of plot and and um an older house there and I think I I think I was just quite a happy-go-lucky kid and so I probably was just quite excited by what was new about now living in a city and being able to walk down to my school and um, you know being able to ride my bike around the neighborhood it was definitely you know those days where you know, I wouldn't get home from school until it was sort of dinner time because I'd be riding my bike with my friends or seeing whose piggy bank we could raid to go to the the dairy on the corner for sweets or, uh, and that was totally okay. You know, mum knew where we were and she'd just kind of send a call out around the neighborhood when it was dinner time and we'd come clambering back for something to eat. So I think I was just embracing, you know, the new freedoms and the new experiences that came with city life. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And then coming through your sort of high school time, was there subjects that you enjoyed more than others? Or yeah, what was it that kept you interested at that time? Yeah, so when I was about 11, we actually moved out of Auckland and moved up to Whangarei. Um, and my dad went in to fly the rescue helicopter there for about 12 years. And so I moved schools again, went into intermediate and then into high school. And I very much got into art and history. So my high school years, I was always the one that was in the art studio covered in paint or um, out drawing. Um, I loved English and history as well, uh, but was never really big on maths or science or physical education so you'd never catch me at Saturday morning sports or anything like that I was I was sort of a bit more of a dreamer I think at that stage yeah oh that's interesting and coming through sort of the end of high school did that naturally lead you to to want to do something when you when you left high school or yeah what happened next when I was a small kid, I, I really wanted to be an architect or get into design. And so um, interesting that I that, that was a field I never actually picked up on. Um, when I came out of high school, I went into um, marketing and business. And I actually studied extramurally to complete my um, university education. And I picked up a role within Whangarei at the local radio station. So straight out of high school, I went in and, um, and yeah, was a radio announcer for four or five years uh, before I did my first overseas experience. How did the chance come about to work at the radio? <laughs> um, it's, yeah, how did that come about? I was one of my tutors had an advertising agency that was based in the same building as the radio station. 
And he sort of approached me after um, one of our online lectures one day and said, um, hey, look, there's actually an opportunity for an intern at this advertising agency. Would you be interested in it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Wonderful opportunity. So I went in and worked at the advertising agency for a year, but then was was quite lured by the opportunity of radio and um you know, all of the fun and excitement that came with with that business. And so when I was offered a, a permanent role at the radio station, uh, quite soon afterwards, I sort of jumped at it. And I initially went in and my job was to sort all of the ads into their ad slots across about five or six uh, different radio stations. So it was a very menial first or sort of second job. Um, but it really sort of got me into the engine room of how a radio operation, you know, radio station works. And um, it was just at the moment in time when radio was being digitized. So we'd gone not long ago from having cassette tapes and having to order cassette tapes of every ad uh, into a digitized system. And so, um, yeah, that was really, really cool. And then I did that for a year and then picked up an, an on-air role and did that for the next three years. Wow, that's amazing. It's funny as well to think that in decades to come, people will listen to this interview maybe and they'll be like, wow, that's the olden days, you know, like the cassette tapes, for example. <laughs> yeah, luckily I just just missed that one. But um, had I been a year or so earlier, I would have been sorting cassette tapes, which is... Yeah. And what was it like being, I guess, being on the radio? Were you, did you have a slot, like a certain you know, between this hour and this hour you're there or how did that work? So because it's a regional station, I did all sorts of things. Um, you sort of had to be a bit of a jack of all trades. So I did a lot of promotions work. So I would be out and about in promotional vehicles doing giveaways um, and I'd be recording pieces to air for that. I did um, live segments for a number of the breakfast shows. I recorded ads. Um, I think I might have read the read the news a few times. Uh, the weather, just sort of really any any opportunities that came through where there was a bit of a vacant slot, I'd sort of jump in and see, you know, do what was needed. So was that a, a job, you know, where you ended up? I guess, being known for being on the radio and would people come up to you and, and recognize your voice or, yeah, what was that like? Yeah, look, I suppose in a small town, it was a little bit like that. Um, people, I think, definitely knew who I were if, if they listened to the radio, uh, to that station. Um, yeah, and, and I was quite young at the time. I was very much in my early 20s, so I suppose it was probably a bit of fun. Um, the station I worked for had a very um, recognisable Volkswagen Beetle as their promo car. And that was my car that I drove around in. So people would sort of spot me a mile off, which, you know, had uh, upsides and downsides sometimes. Um, mm. But yeah, no, it was, it was just an absolutely fantastic opportunity as a first job. And for someone of my age, you know, with the energy and the drive to be out doing, you know, competitions and, and events for a radio station. It was just fantastic. I can imagine it would have taught you a whole bunch of skills that you would never get if you'd gone straight to university or some other studying. You know, you're actually out in the real world, you're meeting, you're dealing with the public, and then you're doing news announcing, you're doing advertisements. Like it, it sounds like it was quite diverse. It was incredibly diverse. And I think it's it's definitely impacted the way that I communicate moving forward. Um, 
you know, it, it just gave me a lot of communication skills in terms of how I order the way I talk and, and a lot of things that I just would never have had the opportunity to explore had I not um, worked in radio. I'm similar um, in the sense of I was an English teacher in Japan for a year. And being an English teacher, you have to really speak clearly so that the students can understand you. And I think that has now helped doing a podcast where I'm interviewing people because I'm able to speak, I guess, in a clear way, you know. So it's it's those things in early in life that then end up affecting later on, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it's a great school to have. We're very lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so what happened next? Uh, what happened next was I decided um, that I was going to go and spend some time in London. So my um, father is British. I'm a first generation Kiwi. Um, mm-hmm. And so a great uh, deal of my family are still based in England. And I really wanted to have the chance to go and meet them and explore the other side of the world. Um, and also, I think I was probably getting a little bit old to be a radio promo girl as well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the tender age of sort of 23, 24, I was sort of, I was the oldest of, of everyone there. And so I thought it was time to, you know, perhaps go and get a, a slightly more substantial role. And so mm-hmm. I off for a couple of years to London and I did a lot of traveling um, and I did a lot of uh, sort of contract roles. Uh, mm-hmm. mainly in PR uh, and media. So that was a fantastic opportunity. And then I, I came back about two years later and started in more traditional roles back in New Zealand, mm-hmm. more traditional yeah. roles. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious because we're going to speak about what you're doing today, but that time overseas, did you feel when you left New Zealand that being away cemented your identity in ways that it hadn't been before or just talk us through that what was it like to be a kiwi particularly a first generation kiwi going you know to england and and yeah what was that dynamic like for you so i think perhaps not on my first trip to england i think so i i did um two years in my sort of early mid-20s in england then i came back to New Zealand and then I actually went back over to England in my early 30s and was away for about eight years okay Um, and so I think definitely being slightly older and and um holding slightly more senior roles and I think just being a little bit more aware of my community and my network that second time round, I definitely felt a much stronger identity as a Kiwi in England um, and it was interesting for me because I did a lot of, again, I did a lot of contract roles and a lot of travel while I was away. And one of the roles I did was for a Tourism New Zealand based in, um, their, uh, in New Zealand house in um, uh, okay. London, yeah, Haymarket. And I think, you know, really having that ambassadorial role for New Zealand really helped cemented my pride. Often I think it's not until you get out of New Zealand and you look back and you understand other cultures and how other countries and organizations work. And then you look back on your time in New Zealand and you just realize how special this Mm. place is. Um, The way we do business, but also the people and just the pride that we have in country and in Mm. each other. And Mm. I think you know, as you said, there is absolutely nothing like a bit of distance and living in another country to to really heighten your pride of New Zealand and of being a New Zealander. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you completely. I have an accent, but I actually grew up in New Zealand in Christchurch. I lived in Wellington. I, this is 
this is my home. But I lived in England for several years and then in, in Japan and in Australia. And one of the things that was interesting is when somebody gave me a Ponamu necklace. And I used to wear that every day in London. And just having a little piece of New Zealand, you know, that close to my heart, that right around my neck. It, and I don't think that it would have meant maybe the same if I'd received it here in some ways. It was like a little physical connection point back to the country. Yeah, I totally understand that. Yeah. It, it's like when you, um, that moment that I think a lot of Kiwis talk about when you're in, say, London Heathrow and you're about to return to New Zealand and you hop on that Air New Zealand plane and you hear mm. the air hostess or um, the steward speak in that Kiwi accent. And, mm. you know, from the moment you step on that plane, it feels like you're home already. Or, you know, when you land into, into Auckland Airport and you hear the overhead announcers, you know, mm. um, you know, announcing that planes have landed or any other you know, sort of housekeeping notices, but you just, you can hear that accent and you yep. just feel at home. It's, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it sounds like you had quite a diverse next couple of years in terms of here, back in England and things. I'd love to find out a little bit more about what you're doing today. And in particular with Kia, um, do you mind bring us, bringing us up to speed? And, and yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Absolutely. So I, after about eight years uh, overseas, I came back to New Zealand four and a half years ago. And I spent uh, three years in at Fonterra, which was a fantastic launch pad back into the New Zealand market. And then about a year to 18 months ago, I uh, decided to really have a think about you know what I wanted to do now that I was back in New Zealand and I was driven to um, you know a more purpose-led organization and um, and something that I was really passionate about so I think Kia for me is about how can we tap into this amazing network of Kiwis who live overseas and who on a daily basis basis extend New Zealand's reach globally mm. um, we are a reasonably small geographically, uh, sorry, a reasonably geographically small country, but with the Kiwis that we have overseas and their passion for New Zealand, our reach is so much more. And so really for me, it was about coming into care and saying, hey, how could we, how could we leverage this network of Kiwis offshore that little bit more to further our interests as a country, but also mm -hmm. how can we support those Kiwis overseas so that they continue to feel really connected to their home country? Mm. That's wonderful. And I think it was founded about 20 years ago, wasn't it? Can you can you just talk to us about that origins? Obviously, you weren't there at the time, but what, what was it that prompted the original founders to say this would be a need that, that you know, we, we should set something up? Yeah, look, as I understand it, uh, Kia was um, forged, I suppose, at a conference that was held about 21 years ago called the Knowledge Wave. And it was at a time when we were losing a lot of Kiwis overseas. Um, the term brain drain, I think, was one that was used at the time. And our founders, Professor David Tees and Sir Stephen Tyndall, were really thinking, you know, hey, we are going to lose these Kiwis. Kiwis do go overseas. We are natural explorers. We're not going to be able to curve that. But really, how might we be able to mitigate the loss of skills? 
And that's really where Kia was born, with the idea of how can we keep in touch with our Kiwis as they travel overseas, as they come home, as they travel overseas again, as we tend to do, and make sure that even if they're not geographically located with us here in New Zealand, that we, we can still call on them, um, call on their skills, their networks, and their perspectives from afar. Mm. So it's not so much about encouraging all these Kiwis overseas to necessarily come back to New Zealand. It's about connecting with them and continuing to um, have that connection back to New Zealand, it sounds like. Absolutely. You know, as a, as a nation, we do like to explore. Um, that's why, you know, we've got the second largest diaspora in the OECD. We have a, you know, almost 20% of our population lives outside of New Zealand at any one moment in time. Mm. And that I don't think, or I hope is not going to change. Um, so, so really it's about recognizing that that trend exists, but saying, you know, with that, we have an enormous opportunity when these Kiwis are out, um, out of New Zealand traveling, they're gaining new skills and experiences. And also they can serve as amazing ambassadors to New Zealand. So actually it's, it's a wonderful opportunity for us that so many uh, of our Kiwis do live and work overseas at any one moment in time. And so Kia is really, as I see it, is just really about how we can keep everyone connected to New Zealand and how we can use this sort of natural occurrence as a real opportunity for our country. Mm, that's so good. And I know that you would have met many people through this job. <laughs> are there any, um, I guess, stories that have really stood out to you of people who are doing what you're talking about overseas? Is there any that, um, yeah, that, that stand out? I think one of the things that first struck me when I started working for Kia was just the passion that Kiwis have for each other and for New Zealand. I, I sort of knew that that might be the case, or I thought that might be the case, but I've been absolutely blown away by just how many Kiwis overseas are willing to open their networks, to share their perspectives, to share their learnings, and to really do good by other Kiwis. And there are just absolutely countless numbers of Kiwis that I could talk about. You know, mm -hmm. with our Kia Connect service, which is a, a service that we offer for New Zealand businesses to connect with Kiwis offshore, we connect almost 40 businesses every month. And, and that number is growing and we are never short of Kiwis who are putting their hand up and saying, you know, hey, look, you know, you might be a honey, a Manuka honey producer who's looking to export into Europe. I've been there, done that, you know, five years ago. I've, um, I've made a few mistakes. I've got lots of learnings. I've got lots of contacts. I want to share this with the next Manuka honey producer in New Zealand who wants to go on that journey. So the daily mahi of Kia is, is literally finding um, businesses that we can connect these people with um, mm. because there is just, yeah, as I said, we are never short of Kiwis overseas putting their hand up and wanting to help. Mm. So if people are interested in finding out more, it sounds like it's more than just reaching out to the Kiwis offshore it's actually a connection point for Kiwis here who want to go offshore, that that's something that you can help with. Absolutely, absolutely. So at Kia, you know, we look to support our Kiwis offshore as a community. Um, how we sort of leverage that community is by connecting New Zealand businesses into them. And so 
on our website, which is carenewzealand.com, there is a section for Care Connect and any businesses who are looking to go overseas to export, no matter what stage of their journey they are on, chances are there will be a Kiwi in a very similar industry in the region that you're interested in, in who is willing and able to help you. So it's just a matter of jumping onto the website, answering a couple of questions, and then we can get started on connecting you. Oh, that's really great because there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who maybe wouldn't be aware of this. And I certainly deal with a lot of startups who I'm sure would benefit from the wisdom of someone who's been down the road and, and done it. So in the show notes, we'll put links to things. So if there's anything particularly like the website, we can drop it in. So if people are listening now, make sure you check out the show notes to look at you know these connection points. Um, I'm just curious, maybe as we wrapping up the interview, but just thinking about what is it that sets New Zealand apart or makes it a bit distinctive? Because I have a feeling that other countries, there might not be quite the same connection point back to where they were from. And I'm just wondering if just thinking out loud, you know, the concepts of manakitanga and like looking after each other as a community coming together and the fact that we are relatively small on the world stage you know, I just wonder if those are elements, you've obviously thought about this more than me. What is it that you think that it means that people are willing to support others coming out? Because, you know, if you ha- if you were a Manuka honey pr- producer and, you know, it's a competitive business, why would you reach out to help the next generation? What, yeah, any thoughts on that? It's, it's a great question. And, um, you know, I definitely have thought about it. I think, you know, for me, there's something in it, definitely something in our size and definitely something about our position in the world. You know, we are sort of a small island nation, very much on the edge of the world. And, you know, in some ways we are kind of the the little cousins um, to some of the larger countries. And so I think that does give us... Um, you know, a real pride in, in ourselves, but also kind of wants, it kind of calls for us to punch a little bit above our weight. And mm-hmm. um, so we want to help each other punch above our weight as a country. And it's just not something that I've experienced in, in other countries that I've lived and traveled in. And so it is something really, really unique. Um, I think it's also something that you can't sort of conjure so a larger company, uh, sorry, a larger country couldn't sort of go on a mission to create goodwill amongst its population. It's really something that you either have or you don't. And New Zealand has it in spades for, you know, whatever reason. And so it's just such an amazing natural attribute um, that, um, you know, makes us really special. It's, a, it's an interesting one. It would, be, it would be fascinating to commission some research into it, wouldn't it, to, to go into what is it that separates a country like New Zealand from, you know, China or even America or uh, other places like that? What is it that's distinctive? And I think we've touched on some of it, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating area. I'll watch with interest to see as people think about it more, what comes out. Well, Tony, it's been great to have you on this show uh, for Seeds. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And the thing that stuck out to me was just the fact that you've experienced what you're now doing. <laughs> and I love that in life, there are often these points of connection. And the fact that you yourself went overseas and experienced what life was like as an expat 
and then coming back. Now you're continuing on with what you learned by connecting QEs overseas. It's really, um, it's really cool to see how life sometimes weaves together in that way. Um, but also I'm pretty sure it takes a purposeful attitude to look for those opportunities as well. <laughs> so, you know, it, it doesn't just happen by chance. And so you, the thing I've taken from our interview is just, you know, you, you had an attitude of a year and a half ago or whatever, how can I actually change things up a little bit? And, and this role seems like it's really well suited given your background. Absolutely. Very, very lucky to um, be able to find a role where I can use um, not just my work skills, but also my life skills and, and perspectives. So it's a fantastic opportunity to work with these amazing Kiwis every day. And I'm really grateful. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links to things. So send me over anything you'd like in there. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. And it's been great to um, hear a bit more of your journey. So thanks for joining me. Great. Thanks very much. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Tony. For me, there were several things that stood out. Among them was the fact that she herself lived all that she's doing today because she had that experience overseas as well. And I thought it was really fascinating to hear about the willingness of Kiwis who've left to still contribute back to what's going on here. It might be that in your business, there would be a mentor or somebody that could have a wealth of experience to share with you. So make sure you check out the website that's in the show notes. And don't forget to hit subscribe on the podcast to be able to see upcoming interviews. And if you enjoy this, why not tell a friend? Until next time. Mm-hmm.